Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 10 this morning. As we uh, continue in studying about the conversion of the very first Gentile, and that is Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Um, we'll be uh, reading in verses 34 through 48. And remember, Peter is in Joppa along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Cornelius is up in Caesarea, about 35 miles north. Cornelius received an angelic vision that told him to send for Peter down in Joppa. Joppa uh, is where Peter has been raising the dead. He raised Dorcas from the dead. And Peter in Joppa also receives an angelic vision where he is told what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this was in terms of the unclean animals. So now they are clean. So Peter gets this incredible message and then suddenly these messengers from Cornelius show up at the gate. They come in, they visit, they spend the night and now Peter's on his way back up to Caesarea where Cornelius is. Uh, They exchange their initial greetings and share information And then starting in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter is now going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to Cornelius. So we pick it up here in verse 34 of Acts chapter 10. And as I read this again, since I'm reading the inspired Word of God, uh, please give very careful attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him. The word which He sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed Him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. We are witnesses of all the things He did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put Him to death by hanging Him on a cross. God raised Him up on the third day and granted that He become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us, who ate and drank with Him after He arose from the dead. And He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the One who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of Him all the prophets bear witness that through His name, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers that were there with with Peter, who came with Peter, were amazed 
because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, some of the greatest events in human history have involved tearing down a wall. Uh, The walls of Jericho came tumbling down by God's divine power to bring about the first victory in the conquest of the land of Canaan by the children of Israel. That was a great wall that came tumbling down and it created a great victory for the nation of Israel as they were conquering the land. Now fast forward 3,400 years approximately to the year 1961 when the communists in East Berlin wanting to stop the mass defection from people under their communist control into the freedom of West Berlin in order to stop that and to prevent the influences of Western freedom from going over into the communist East Berlin well the communists built and constructed a great wall called the Berlin Wall. They wanted to protect their socialist communist state from the encroachment of freedom and liberty from the West. Well, then 26 26 years later, on June the 12th, 1987, President Ronald Reagan, standing in front of the Berlin Wall, called upon the leader of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, saying, Mr. Gorbachev, Tear down this wall. And this bold challenge helped to bring about the tearing down of that wall and the dissolving of the Soviet Union a few years later. Seems that tearing down this wall is kind of a popular message today among the liberals. President Trump, tear down this wall. But some walls should be erected and should stand. In fact, If you read in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem is going to have a high, tall wall all the way around it. So some walls are appropriate and bring glory to God. And nations, I think, are certainly right to have a wall. But some walls need to be torn down. And the greatest wall ever that needed to be torn down in human history required the death of Jesus Christ to tear it down. This was the dividing wall that was erected between the Jews and the Gentiles. And it was erected by none other than God Himself through the old covenant that He gave to His people Israel. A wall of separation. A wall that divided Israel from the world in an appropriate covenantal sense under the terms of the old covenant. That spiritual wall, which functioned as a covenantal barrier separating the unbelieving, idolatrous, immoral Gentiles from God's chosen people, could not be torn down by the words of men. It could only be torn down by the Word of God. And like the walls of Jericho, 
It took a miraculous work of God to tear down that wall. That tearing down we are about to read of in Acts chapter 10. This wall of division that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 2 between the Jews and the Gentiles is the greatest wall ever to be torn down in human history. And again, it took the very death of the Son of God on the cross to tear it down. The reason why I'm emphasizing that is because we must never forget the glory of God in the Gospel that brought down this wall. I think we take it for granted as Gentile believers that we are, we are saved by grace, yeah, but we forget who we once were in the eyes of the Old Covenant. We take it for granted too often when we think of salvation as free, but we forget that we were the unclean animals under the law. We were the ones who were looked upon by the Jews as being the dogs. We were the ones who were rejected and defiled and defiling of others. We were the creeping things, the, the wild olive tree outside of God's orchard. But God now in grace has opened the doors to the unclean to be washed by the blood of Christ. And though we deserve to be burned with fire, we are now grafted into God's covenant tree. And that covenant wall that stiff-armed us before, pushing us away, excluding us, now has come tumbling down by the grace of God. And without any fear of becoming a charismatic, I think our appropriate response to this is glory be to God. Hallelujah to Jesus Christ. Because that wall that separated us now is torn down and we can enter in through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a glorious thing that we're about to read about in, the, in Acts chapter 10. So Peter is now standing in the home of Cornelius the Roman Gentile centurion. He has gathered his family and his friends. And there are many people in his home. Every one of them is a Gentile. But every one of them is ready to hear a message from God brought by this Jewish fisherman. And so we begin reading again in verse 34. We're opening his mouth Peter said, I most certainly understand that God is not one to show partiality. The very first thing he says to these Gentiles is that I now understand, based on the vision that he had, connecting the dots that the unclean animals that are now considered clean actually was a symbol of humans, unclean humans, that are now considered clean in the eyes of God. There's no more partiality with God. Now in the Old Testament, showing partiality primarily was a description of God and also for human judges who were not to show partiality. How do you show partiality? Well, you render your verdict as a judge based upon some external feature of the people. You may take a bribe because they're giving you money. You may favor the rich over the poor. And all that was evil. That's what it means to show partiality. Is you show favoritism based on some external circumstance or something that you might 
get from them. God didn't show partiality that way, neither should the judges. God's election of Israel under the Old Covenant was not based on partiality. He did not choose Israel based on any external criteria in the nation. It's not because they were better, not because they were holier, not because they were more, they were fewer than most. And in fact, uh, Israel was no better than the other nations. They were worse than most in their own rebellion against the light that they had. So God chose them, but not based on partiality. Not based on any external thing about the nation of Israel. Now in the New Testament, these kinds of verses that say that God no longer shows partiality is based on the same principle. God doesn't show favoritism. He never has, but He doesn't show favoritism now to men based on nationality. God doesn't favor one nation over the other anymore. God doesn't show favoritism based on one's outward appearance, based upon uh, the amount of money that they have, their wealth, their social status, their achievements. God doesn't show partiality in that way. That's what partiality means, is that you, you twist your verdict based upon some external circumstance of those people. God doesn't show partiality that way. So therefore, this is no argument against the doctrine of election because when God chooses from before the foundation of the world certain sinners to save, He doesn't do it based on partiality. It's not based upon how they look or how much money they have or what kind of job they have or or their social status or anything like that. No, it's based on pure sovereign grace. It is undeserved. It's unmerited. God doesn't show partiality when He elects. Okay? So what Peter is saying to these Gentiles here right now is that, look, I understand now that God's grace and blessings are as open to you as they are to Jews. God shows partiality on a national basis no more. It's no more favoring Jews over Gentiles. God no longer shows partiality. And when God does His work of grace, it's always by His grace. It's sovereign grace. And you Gentiles, I now understand that though you once were unclean under the old covenant, now under the new covenant, God shows no partiality. There is, you are no longer considered unclean according to the promises of God. You are now clean. He goes on to add, also, if you look at verse 35, he says, but in every nation... The man who fears God and does what is right is welcome to him. Now, if you look at verse 35, you may think, well, golly, is, is Peter saying that, that those who do, do right are acceptable to God? As if they're saved by their works in some ways? Well, of course, that's not what Peter is saying. Uh, later on, if you follow down uh, in verse 43, salvation is clearly by faith. It's not by works. It's not by righteousness. That's what, that is not what, what Peter is saying. He's basically acknowledging God's grace is drawing the centurion to himself. And the vision that Peter had and the vision he heard about that Cornelius had is leading him to this conclusion that he is uh, that Cornelius has been living in the light that God has given him and God is ready to give him more light and he's being drawn to God by God and based on that God welcomes him so this isn't any argument for work salvation or anything like that 
This is not Pope Peter instituting the sacrament, saying that sinners can be saved by doing good. That's not what he's saying here. But he's acknowledging that God is at work. And again, God is drawing this centurion to himself. And based on that, Peter acknowledges that he's welcome to come by the grace of God. Starting in verse 36 then, we now get into the content of the gospel. One, if you ever wonder, well, what do I share with an unbeliever? What's, the, what's a good message to give? Well, you can learn by seeing how Peter speaks to Cornelius. This is probably a, an abbreviated summary that Luke is writing for us. I would imagine that Peter probably amplified certain areas, but uh, we get the, certainly the gist of what he was saying as the Spirit of God brings to, to Luke this information for him to record and write down. Verse 36, The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. I'm reading from the New American Standard here. Notice he says, there is a word, there is a message, there is a good news gospel, which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Now that's what they had been doing up to this point. The apostles had been preaching to the Jews primarily. Few Samaritans had come into the fold, but primarily preaching to the Jews this message of peace through Jesus Christ. And Christ is Lord of all. And you can understand the implication of that for Peter. He's not only Lord over you Jews, He's Lord over the Gentiles as well. And all that's going to play out as He he continues to preach. But the word of salvation goes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So he's acknowledging that the word came first to the sons of Israel. But the content of the message is peace. Peace through Jesus Christ. And preaching peace is at the very heart of the gospel for both Jews and Gentiles. You see, what's primarily in view here is that men need peace with God. And the reason why we need peace with God is because of a twofold natural hostility that exists between God and man. First, from man's side. Due to the fall of Adam, we have been so corrupted and depraved in our nature that there is an inherent hostility towards God. We have no peace with God. We don't want peace with God. Romans chapter 8, Paul says that the mind of the flesh is hostile toward God. We're ready to fight. I mean, it's hostile towards God. In Romans 1, he says, by nature we are God-haters. In Romans chapter 5, he says, by nature we are enemies of God. Enemies. There's no peace from our perspective. We don't want peace with God. We're ready to fight against God, oppose God. We're hostile to the things of God. In our own depravity, we are at war with God. There is no peace from our side. From God's side, there's no peace either. God is holy. He is at war with us because we are sinners. And God by nature is a holy God and His holiness must punish and consume sin. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2 that by nature we are children of what? 
wrath. We are children of wrath. We deserve the wrath of God. And because God is holy and in His very nature a consuming fire, we as His enemies are the chaff for the burning so that there is no peace. There's no peace from our perspective. There's no peace from God. Because God in His holiness hates sin and He will consume it. So our greatest need as a sinner is I need peace with God. I need peace. I need to become friends with God. I need to be reconciled with God. But who can do that? Who can remove and forgive our sin and change our hateful hearts? And who can remove God's holy, just wrath toward us? Well, that's why Peter says there is peace through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Because only the Son of God, only Jesus Christ can reconcile and take away and satisfy God's wrath by bearing it Himself for our sins on the cross. And not only Jesus Christ can take our sins and suffer for them on the cross so that only Jesus Christ can remove the enmity of a holy God against sinners. And only Jesus Christ can remove the enmity of the sin of the sinners against God and reconcile the two together through His shed blood on the cross. And that's why Paul says in Romans 5 that Verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter is emphasizing this tremendous concept is that we need to have peace with God. And on a practical level, sinners, they don't have peace with God and you just see it in their life. You see it in the way they live their life. Uh, They're not fulfilled. They're not satisfied because they have no relationship with God. And then look at what Peter adds to that in verse 37. You yourselves know the thing which took place through all Judea starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. Now notice he said, he's talking to Gentiles and he says, you yourselves know. Well, how did they learn about this? Well, they probably had had some contact maybe with uh, Christians uh, in Caesarea, around the area. They probably had gathered information about the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, And when Peter understands that, because he has just traveled about at least a day and a half with these uh, messengers from Cornelius as they're going from Joppa back up to Caesarea, they probably told Peter all that, that Cornelius had shared with them about his knowledge about Jesus and his interest in learning more. So when, when Peter says in verse 37, you yourselves know the thing, he's probably basing that on information that he's received from those men traveling from Joppa to Caesarea. Now notice he mentions the baptism of John here in verse 37. Um, All four Gospels mention the baptism of Jesus by John. And Mark in his Gospel actually begins his Gospel with the baptism of John. uh, John's baptism of Jesus. 
So why is it so important that all the Gospels emphasize that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by, by John the Baptist? Lots of different uh, explanations for that. But I would say that in uh, Matthew 3, Jesus said in order to fulfill all righteousness, He needed to submit to John's baptism. Well, how is He fulfilling all righteousness? Well, to me, what I like to think of is in the Old Testament, the high priest, before he was inducted into his office, always had to be bathed, fully bathed and dipped, immersed in water. And that really was a part of his consecration as a high priest. He had to be bathed. And I think our great high priest, starting his high priestly ministry, now to fulfill all righteousness, submits to baptism in a sense as his part of his consecration to his high priestly ministry. Now others will say he does it, he submits to baptism as an example for us, to identify with us, whatever, but it's very, very important that he, that he went through that. And then we learn in verse 38 and 39 that he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. We read in verse 38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So Peter speaks of Christ's baptism, then of his anointing by the Holy Spirit. You know what's interesting that he says here in verse 38 that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power so that he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. You know, Christ could have done all the miracles that He did by His own divine power because He was God. He never lost any of His deity or any of the attributes of His deity. But as a, as a, a sign of His submission to the Father and of His humility, everything that He did, He did through the power of the Holy Spirit, not through His own divine power. And in part, that was just a part of his humiliation, that he, he didn't utilize his own divine attributes, but he relied on the power of the Spirit to do all that he did. Now this anointing of the Holy Spirit that Peter makes reference to, again, is very, very important. Because the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah and His kingdom would be characterized by the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah foresaw this, we read this earlier, in our scripture reading, <clears throat> Isaiah actually records the pre-incarnate Jesus speaking about His own ministry when He said in Isaiah 61 verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Isaiah is writing this, but this is really Jesus speaking. He's recording what Jesus says of Himself. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to do what? Well, to preach, to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And then in Isaiah 35, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And all of this is a prophecy of the ministry of the Messiah anointed by the Spirit of God. So all that Jesus did throughout His earthly ministry 
was through the power of the Spirit. And even in casting out demons, His kingdom would overthrow the kingdom of Satan by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember in Matthew 12 and verse 28, Jesus said, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. So when Jesus cast out the demons, that was an indication that the Messianic kingdom had come in power through the Holy Spirit. So that Jesus cast out demons by the Spirit, indicating that not only was He fulfilling the prophecies of the Messiah, but His kingdom had come. So His kingdom actually manifested the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 39, Peter says, we are witnesses of all these things. We saw it. We were there. We, we saw everything. And then in verse 39, the second part, he speaks of the death and resurrection of Christ. This is also an important part of the Gospel message. He says, they also put Him to death by hanging Him on a cross And God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So now Peter brings in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as essential elements of the gospel. In the New American Standard, at the end of verse 39, when it says they put Him to death by hanging Him on a cross, there's a Greek word for cross, which Peter doesn't use here. There's another word for tree, and that's the word that Peter uses here. Uh, More accurately, it'd say they put Him to death by hanging Him on a tree. Well, everyone would understand from a Jewish background, and possibly... Cornelius may have understood this, that whenever you say that he hung on a tree, they knew exactly what that meant. Because in the Mosaic law, those who hung on a tree were what? Cursed. So Peter probably, by emphasizing that they hung him on a tree, may very well have explained to them that Jesus became a curse for us He bore our sins and bore the curse of the law of God for us. He may very well have have, uh, clarified that by choosing that particular word. And then, of course, He was uh, raised from the dead miraculously by God. On the third day, He says, uh, verse uh, 40, and, and granted that He become visible to these God-chosen witnesses in verse 41. So Peter says, I was one of those basically that was chosen by God to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now there are many others. We know in 1 Corinthians 15 at one time there were 500 that once saw the risen Lord. But he's just emphasizing that we saw Him. This is not a fable. This is none of this stuff that you Romans were spreading around the rumor that the disciples came and stole His body. Remember that? That that was a lie they told to try to cover up the resurrection. Maybe that had reached Cornelius and maybe it... No, Peter says, we saw Him. And not only that, we ate and drank with Him. Now the significance of making reference 
that we actually ate and drank with him uh, there in verse 41 is to indicate that this was a real resurrection. This is not a mystical uh, appearance. This is not an illusion. It wasn't a hallucination. Uh, this is not like the liberals say, well, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead because he's alive within our hearts. Like the Methodist minister that I asked one time, if he believed in the bodily resurrection, he said, well, no, I think Jesus rose from the dead though, but because he lives within our hearts. That is not what Peter is saying. We actually ate and drank food with Jesus. He had a real body and He ate real food. This is a real resurrection. And we saw it. We are witnesses of that. And then in verse 42, He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the One who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So now what does Peter bring to their attention? There's a judgment coming. Christ died. He arose from the dead. But He's coming again and He'll come as judge. This will occur at the uh, second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul later on in Acts 17, we'll say the same thing when he says to the Athenians that God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. See, an essential part of the Gospel is that there's a judgment that's coming. That when Christ comes back, He will judge the living and the dead. Now notice by emphasizing that He will judge the living and the dead at the end of verse 42, no one escapes. No one. No one can escape this judgment. If you do not repent and believe in Jesus Christ now as your Lord and Savior, you will be judged for all of your sins on that future day that is coming. You need peace with God. And only Jesus Christ can give you that peace. And no one will escape the day of judgment. If you're alive when Jesus Christ comes back, you will stand before His judgment bar. If you're dead when Jesus Christ comes back, He will resurrect you and you will stand before His judgment bar. Everybody will appear before the judge of the universe And if we have not received forgiveness through Christ, if we have not repented and put our faith in Christ alone to save us, and hear those words, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, you will be condemned for all of your sins. And this is the, there's no other reason why we need a Savior if there's no judgment to come. And Peter is emphasizing very emphatically that we will stand before Christ as judge on that day. And if He is not our Savior, then He will condemn us and damn us to hell forever. I think so often times when we preach the Gospel, we're almost ashamed to bring up hell. <laughs> it's a terrible doctrine. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a serious doctrine. 
But it is absolutely gospel truth. And what a sinner needs to understand is not only are they a sinner, but they will stand before the bar of God's judgment. There's only one way of escape, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. So Peter emphasizes that he doesn't draw back from it. He makes it very clear to them that they have been commanded to preach to the people, mainly the Jewish people, verse 42, and to solemnly testify. This is serious. It is solemn. When you bring up the idea of the day of judgment, to solemnly testify that Christ has been appointed by God as judge. And if you reject Him now, then you will pay for it later in that day. And then he kind of begins to wrap up in verse 43 when he says, Of Him all the prophets bear witness that through His name everyone who believes in Him receives the forgiveness of sins. This is, this is glorious. You receive Him now as your Savior and He will forgive you of all of your sins or you will stand before Him later as your judge. And notice the, the openness of the Gospel in verse 43. All the prophets bear witness that through His name, everyone who believes, not just the Jews, but even the Gentiles, everyone who believes in Him receives the forgiveness of sins. Now notice this is not based on you walking the aisle. It's not based on you responding to the seventh verse of Just As I Am being sung by the choir. It's not simply acknowledging your, your, your sin and then turn your back on Jesus. It's just simply you come and you believe in Him. And faith in Christ alone will save you on that day of judgment. He will forgive you of all of your sins. He will impute His own sinless righteousness to your spiritual ledger when you come to Him in faith as your Savior and Lord. Not that you're going to live your life sinlessly, but you want to live for Him. You want to honor Him. You want to please Him. You receive Him as your Savior and you acknowledge Him that He is Lord of all. Now this is a phenomenal Gospel to these Gentiles. Because notice what He does not say to receive the forgiveness of sins. It's not you got to believe and be you know, circumcised or believe and go to Jerusalem and believe or go to the temple or, 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 or engage in the kosher laws of the dietary laws of the Jews or, or engage in the ceremonial laws of the Jews or bring your sacrifice. None of that. It is simply believe and He will forgive you of your sins. This is absolutely revolutionary because the Gospel is simply come to Christ in faith. Plus nothing. There's nothing that you have to do to be saved. To be forgiven of your sins. And the Spirit of God is leading Peter to emphasize the simple, the simplicity of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now notice again what the Gospel is. The Gospel deals with sin, judgment, forgiveness. Based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
This is not the psychological gospel that's so popular today. Come to Jesus for self-improvement. And He'll help you work on your self-esteem. It's not the health and wealth gospel. Come to Jesus because He wants to make you healthy and wealthy. It's not the social gospel. Come to Jesus so we can be saved by overcoming poverty or all the social problems of the world. No, it's He can save you from your sin. Which hangs like a millstone around your neck. Which will send you to the bottom of the lake of fire in the day of judgment if you do not repent and believe. That is basically the gospel. And we must not water down the message of sin or judgment or the need of forgiveness. That's what the gospel is. It's offensive by nature. That's why it's so hard for us to share it with other people. Because for the most part, you know you may get a negative response to it. People do not like to hear that they are sinners and that God will hold them accountable. They do not like that. They don't, they, they don't want to hear it and they, they are offended when you tell them that. But there is no other Gospel. There is no other Savior that can save from our sins except Jesus Christ. So when Peter gets to this point, suddenly the Spirit interrupts. He was probably just getting wound up. But the Spirit interrupts him. And in verse 44, we read, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all these circumcised believers, the Jews, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Now again, while Peter is actually speaking these words, the Cornelius and his family and the people there started believing. They started putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And in response to their faith, the Spirit of God fell directly upon them. And notice in verse 44, it says the Holy Spirit fell upon them. It's a similar word to being poured out upon them, just like on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God is poured out from Jesus in heaven, because Jesus is the one who sends His Spirit, Jesus is now pouring out His Spirit upon these Gentiles. Now again, what's so phenomenal about this is that the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, was what God had promised throughout the Old Testament was His new covenant blessing to His people Israel. Uh, You can find Isaiah talking about this, Ezekiel, Joel, and Zechariah, where they say that when the Messiah comes, part of the gift He will bring to my people Israel is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So on the day of Pentecost, yeah, that's exactly what happened. New covenant is coming in and the Holy Spirit, one of the gifts of the new covenant, is poured out on the Jews. Everybody understands that. That's a fulfillment of the Messianic promise. That's the kingdom is coming in. The Spirit is being poured out upon Israel. But what is amazing to these Jewish believers in verse 45 is that these Gentiles are now getting Israel's new covenant gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what's so amazing. I can't believe that. That's for us. This is our covenant promise and blessing. But now the Gentiles are getting it. 
And how do they know they're getting the Holy Spirit? Because they're speaking in tongues, just like we did on the day of Pentecost. It's exactly the same. And they were astounded because now that wall, that barrier, is being broken down. And now the very gifts of God promised to Israel are now being given to these Gentiles simply on the basis of faith. Apart from them becoming Jews. They're not becoming Jews first and then receive. No, they remain Gentiles. And they're receiving Israel's covenant blessing. This is phenomenal. This is mind-blowing. This is something that they had never really envisioned before. And in the very same way, they received the gift of the Spirit and the gift of tongues just like the apostles did and all the others on the day of Pentecost. And later on in Acts 11, as Peter is explaining this back in Jerusalem, he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did upon us at the beginning. Acts 11, verse 15. So that's why these Jewish believers are absolutely amazed that their covenant gift of the Holy Spirit is now being given to these Gentiles. So they must be equal with us now in Christ, in the new covenant. These Gentiles who believe now must be equal. They're getting the same gift as we are. So this is absolutely phenomenal. The dogs don't just eat the children's crumbs. They now have a seat at the Master's table. The Gentile dogs by faith have become covenant children. And the spiritual continental divide has now been torn down and crossed by the Gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. So now Gentiles can come to the Jewish Messiah and be accepted by faith and become full members of the New Covenant without becoming Jews. Without ever having to go to Jerusalem. Without ever having to offer a sacrifice. Without going through all the ritual things of Judaism. Just as a Gentile, they can receive it all simply by faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. So that Christianity is no longer a Jewish religion, but it is a world religion. And how does Peter then respond to this? We read in verse 47 and verse 48, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who had received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and they asked him to stay on for a few days. So God had obviously saved Cornelius and his family, all who had come to faith in Jesus. God had obviously accepted them. He had obviously blessed them, given them the gift of the Holy Spirit, gave them that spiritual gift of tongues. So how could you argue with this? There's no debate about this. So Peter comes to the only conclusion that he could come to, and that is, who can refuse to baptize them in water? See, up until that time, they'd primarily been baptizing Jewish believers and the Samaritans in, in Acts 8. But now Gentiles, who can, who can withhold the waters of baptism? Now notice, this is also important, they were saved first and then they were baptized. They received the Holy Spirit first and then they were baptized in water. 
So for all the church of Christ who think that you're not saved until you're baptized in water, you're wrong. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And faith saves. Water baptism is the outward expression of our identification with Christ, but it does not save anyone. Important, he, Christ commands it. Important that we do. But it's not necessary for salvation. The thief of the cross was never baptized and yet he was in paradise with Christ on that same day. What, is, what has happened here is that God through Christ has torn down the wall and brought peace, not only between a sinner and God, but peace between Jew and Gentile so that now they are one in Christ. This is what Paul uh, said so powerfully in Ephesians 2, when he rehearsed what the Gentiles were by nature, that they were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants, having no hope. Uh, they're without God in the world. And by the way, that describes you and me as well, by nature. But then Paul goes on to say that those who are far off are brought near through the blood of Christ. That Christ Himself has made the two into one. That He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles by abolishing in His flesh the enmity so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man establishing peace. Peace with God and peace with man. And He might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity so that He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him we have both our access and one Spirit to the Father. Ephesians 2. So that's what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ. This Gospel that Peter preached, this Gospel of the New Covenant salvation through Christ alone is now bursting through the dam of Judaism like floodwaters that begin to flow out into the barren plains of the nations. These nations, these Gentile nations who to God are like a drop from a bucket that are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales are regarded as by Him as, as nothing and meaningless. Because God is the great Creator and He hung the stars in the sky and He calls them all by name. But this great sovereign God now is opening up the floodgates of the Gospel to flow out to us, to Gentiles, that we might enter by faith and drink of the water of life that only Christ can offer. And I think this passage is designed to help us to see the depths of God's glorious grace. Because we were the ones who once were cut off. Petrified in our idolatry. As God-haters soaked in our sin. Doomed to destruction. We have now been washed and made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because God now shows no partiality any sinner, regardless of what nation you belong to, if you come to faith in Christ, though you once were by nature a child of wrath, are now by grace a child of God. And so Peter extends his stay with them for a few days, again breaking down the social barriers. These Gentiles are, are equal with us in Christ. There is fellowship with one another. 
Jew and Gentile in the Gospel. But when the Berlin Wall began to fall, the people came with their hammers and picks and began to knock away chunks off the Berlin Wall. They actually developed a, a nickname. They were called Wall Woodpeckers because they would peck away and start knocking chips off for mementos and things like that. And eventually they brought in the great bulldozers and they pulled down the Berlin Wall section by section. Suddenly the east part of Berlin that had suffered and been deprived of so many things began to enjoy the fruits of freedom as the West, the influences of the West began to move across into this, this God-forsaken communist country, this city, this part of the city. In a very similar way, when Christ broke down the dividing wall, that spiritual Berlin wall separating us from from the Jews. The freedom of Christ, the, the, the forgiveness of the Gospel now is flowing throughout all the lands of the nations. Those who once were in bondage and slavery now can hear the Gospel. And if they believe by the grace of God, they can be saved. And what we need to remember today in the 21st century is that in light of this, the Gospel is for Everybody. No one should be prohibited or excluded from hearing the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Regardless of one's nationality, regardless of their externals, the Gospel is to be preached to everybody. And sadly, Christians have not always understood this. I read a sad story wrapping this up of Mahatma Gandhi who said in his autobiography that when he was a student in London, in England, he was reading the Gospels of the New Testament and he was, he was impressed and had a serious desire to investigate Christianity and converting to Christianity because he saw in the Gospel a real solution to the caste system of, of India. So on one Sunday, he visited a church to ask the minister about salvation and other doctrines. When he entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat. He didn't look like they did, obviously. He didn't look English. So the ushers refused to seat him and suggested that he go elsewhere to worship with his own people. And he left and he never came back, reasoning in his mind, if Christians have a caste differences, he thought, I might as well remain a Hindu. The attitude of the child of God should never be to look at anybody and say they're unworthy of the Gospel. To never look at anybody, regardless of how they look, regardless of how they dress, regardless of the color of, of, of their hair, their skin, or anything, regardless of, of what language they speak, wherever they come from, it doesn't matter. The Gospel is for everybody. And whenever we look at someone or some people group and they say, well, they don't need the Gospel, then shame on us. Because that's not the openness of the grace of God in the Gospel. And that is why, after all, isn't it true that we call the Great Commission great? It's great because it's great in its source. It comes from God and there's no one greater than God. The Great Commission is great in its subject. It deals with the forgiveness of sins and there's no greater subject than that. But it's also great in its scope. It's for all the nations, for all the peoples. 
And it's our great privilege to preach that gospel and to believe what Paul believed when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The wall has been broken down. Hallelujah. Praise be to Jesus Christ. That's how we got in. May God be blessed. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You, Lord, for this um, sermon that Peter preached and how the Spirit of God opened the hearts of Cornelius and his family and all those who were there to believe in the simplicity of the Gospel of Christ crucified and raised from the dead. And that through that death and resurrection, He offered the only sacrifice for our sin that is acceptable to You. And that any sinner, no matter where they come from, whoever repents and believes in Jesus Christ can receive at that moment the free pardon of all of their sins. And Father, we just pray that You would give us that boldness and give us more of that love for sinners. Because Lord, it's through the tearing down of this dividing wall that Your grace reached out and dragged us into Your kingdom. We who were the unclean animals, we who were the rejected and defiled, Your mercy sought us out. And by tearing down that wall, the Gospel is now flowing through the nations. And oh God, may we have the privilege of being a part of that. And we just want to thank You and bless You. In Jesus' name, Amen.